Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. This week, I talk about the enormous racial rift between black Christians and white evangelicals, the slew of mass shootings we've seen in recent weeks, the massive ICE raids in Mississippi that swept up hundreds of immigrant workers, the death of the award-winning writer Toni Morrison, and what she teaches us about being black and free. Up first, reviews. Every week, I read one or two reviews from you. It's usually my favorite part of the show. And this week, we're up to 176 reviews. That is up from 165 last week. So keep them coming. This week's review comes from, I'm sorry, I'm going to mess up the first name, Sign, S-I-G-N-E, Clayton. But I may have messed up the name, but you, dear reviewer, you wrote beautifully. Footnotes is quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts. Jamar's perspectives on current events are always both incredibly well thought out and thought provoking. I particularly love that he often includes specific action steps that each of us can take to, as the tagline of the podcast states, become more informed citizens, activists, and believers. Being a historian, Jamar is able to add crucial context to the topics he discusses on the podcast, bringing in nuance that is otherwise often overlooked. I also really appreciate how he uses his platform to draw attention to and elevate the voices of black women. I'm always looking forward to new episodes of this show. Big thanks to Jamar and his team on the podcast for the content you are creating. I have no doubt it is making a difference for a lot of folks. I know it does for me. Thank you so much for that review. I am very appreciative that you noticed my efforts to highlight black women. Uh, I can do and need to do much more, but you'll hear more of that in this episode as we talk about Toni Morrison and others. Also, thank you for thanking the team. You said thanks to Jamar and his team because I certainly cannot do it by myself. So thanks, Bo. Thanks, Christina. And thank you again for that review. Also, I want to remind you about our first national conference. That's right. The Witness, a black Christian collective, is putting on a national conference. It's happening October 4th and 5th in Chicago. You can go to joyandjustice.com to register for that. And I really want you to come. If you are listening to news reports like the ones I'm about to give now, and you are tired, you are weary, that you are thinking about this from a faith perspective and from just the perspective of a concerned human being and thinking about your neighbors and loved ones and the the society and the nation and the culture that we're in, stuff that's happening nationally but also in the church and you're weary, come to the Joy and Justice Conference. I want it to be a place of healing and rest, a place where we can laugh together, where we can feel joy even in and especially in the pursuit of justice. So that's joyandjustice.com. We'd love to see you there October 4th and 5th in Chicago. And remember, you can always contact me at footnotespod1 at gmail.com. That is footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. So far, you've sent helpful links regarding the immigration crisis that this administration has amplified and how we can help. You've sent, but you can also send me topic ideas, questions, resources, or just say hi. Yeah, let's keep the conversation going. Okay, this next section is unfortunately, tentatively, (laughs) humorously called Tisbits, because other people, it's peer pressure, folks. That's all it is. But 
Uh, I do have something to say. August 9th marked the five-year anniversary of the killing of Mike Brown, a black teenager from Ferguson, Missouri, by a white police officer, Darren Wilson. Brown's death sparked weeks of protests by members of the Ferguson community and their allies nationally. Law enforcement often met those protests with a military-like show of force, showing up with armed vehicles, armored vehicles, riot gear, tear gas, and all kinds of things. So these events, along with similar others, sparked the National Black Lives Matter movement. Now, going back to the incident itself, initial reports of Brown's death said that he had his hands up in a gesture of surrender when Wilson shot him. But I would encourage you to read the incident report, uh, really the, the research, the thorough research that the Department of Justice did, and they put out a report showing their findings. It shows evidence, including the autopsy, that indicates that, that, that Brown and Wilson engaged in a struggle. And the report basically defended Officer Wilson's assertion that he feared for his life. Now, there's a lot that goes into that, but the autopsy showed that in all likelihood, Brown did not have his hands up, at least when he was fired upon. But, hear me clearly, there were two reports. The other report, again by the Department of Justice, studied the Ferguson Police Department and revealed a pattern of exploiting the residents of Ferguson, most of whom are black, and they gave, the police officers gave citizens, uh, local residents there citations for minor offenses, and they were using that money to fund the city's budget. So they're targeting this community as a source of revenue. Other instances, other instances of police brutality were also included in the report. And one, uh, one instance that has stuck with me this day is that either all or all but one of the canine bites that were reported, uh, happened to black people. And so this is in the 21st century, not the 1950s or 60s, with marchers uh, going across the Selma Bridge and being met by fire hoses and police dogs. Still happening today, folks. So all of this gives ample background for why the local residents harbor such distrust toward the police. And, and Mike Brown's killing for many of us, myself included, it was a moment of awakening. For black people and others, the response of many white evangelicals to this event revealed in a new way the deep divide that still exists between black and white Christians. I actually got to write an article about this in the Washington Post. It's called How Ferguson Widened an Enormous Rift Between Black Christians and White Evangelicals. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. But I wrote, much of the attention today and this weekend will focus on remembering Brown, discussing, discussing criminal justice reform, and evaluating how society has or hasn't changed since that fateful day. These are appropriate topics to discuss. But remembering Brown on the five-year anniversary of his killing would be incomplete without acknowledging the impact that this tragedy had on race relations within American evangelicalism. In the article, I wrote about a blog post I had written shortly after we learned of Mike Brown's death. And, and in that blog post, I challenged readers to, quote, pause to consider the level and extent of injustice that many blacks have experienced at the hands of law enforcement officers. And I proceeded then to 
to share my experiences with law enforcement officers, uh, many of which have been extremely negative and even traumatic. And then after I give all of these painful, heartfelt, revealing examples, here are a couple of responses I got to that post in the comments. One person told me to submit myself to the authority of the police. He told us, he wrote, let us exhort each other to be in subjection, Romans 13, 5, to police and other civil authorities, so long as they're not causing us to commit evil slash sin, as shown by the example of the apostles and other disciples of Christ's generation. Well, this commentator didn't acknowledge that police can be wrong too, such as in the example of Ferguson, when police are targeting this community particularly black people, to get tickets, to give out tickets and and serve as a source of revenue for the city. Another person said that it wasn't just black people who had to be cautious of the police. She, as a white woman, had distasteful run-ins too. She said, I think cops do stereotype. They did it to me, my dad, and no doubt black people. It sucks, but I don't think it happens to you alone. Rural cops do it to city folks or people driving out-of-state plates. City cops do it to minorities, folks who drive muscle cars, or people like me who drive clunkers. In other words, that was an all-lives-matter response. And and lastly, one, one other person said that I was being duped by the media. This person wrote, So again, I would strongly admonish you to really understand what actually happened and the proper context of each case in which the liberal media is saying that somehow we have a war of white police officers killing young black teens. Don't be hoodwinked. Yeah, uh, so after that, I talked about this rift that that black Christians like me and many others, uh, when, when this was all going down and the Black Lives Matter movement was in the news all the time, we began a quiet exodus, to use the words from a New York Times article, from white evangelical congregations and organizations. We distance ourselves both, both relationally and ideologically from a brand of Christianity that seemed to revel in whiteness. So in many parts of evangelicalism, whiteness seems not just to be a bug, but a feature of that tradition. And so here we are. After this quiet exodus, many of us find ourselves in this sort of wilderness wandering. We're not quite sure where we fit anymore. Now, I've never used the label evangelical, but I have for years been in close relationship with evangelicals and their institutions. So I call myself evangelical adjacent. Still, I am searching for a denominational home, a congregational home that feels actually like home. And it's lonely. And and it's this loneliness mixed with the pain of betrayal and injustice when we talk about race in these circles. And so, again, I encourage you, you know, if you're feeling like this, don't go it alone. Join us at, at something like the Joy and Justice Conference, but also listening to a podcast like this and knowing that there are other people who know how you feel, who are just as outraged as you are about police brutality and racism and we're dedicated to Jesus. In fact, it's because we're dedicated to Jesus that we feel that way. You're not alone. Imagine heading to Walmart for a shopping trip so routine you might not remember it the next day. 
you need batteries or hamburger buns or it's your regular shopping trip like you've done countless times before. Then a sound like a massively loud firecracker rings out. More like dozens of firecrackers going off in rapid succession. Pop, 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 pop. For a brief moment, your mind thinks, what is that? It's not the 4th of July. Why does that sound inside a store? Then the chilling reality sets in. People screaming, people running. It's a live shooter. And the next bullet might be coming for you. Well, that's a scenario that might have run through someone's head in the latest in a string of mass shootings, this time in El Paso, Texas. On the morning of August 3rd, a lone gunman, 21 years old, entered the Walmart in El Paso and started shooting. By the time the ordeal ended with the shooter taken alive, he had killed 22 people and injured two dozen others. Just minutes before he began shooting, he posted a manifesto, at least authorities believe, it's from this shooter, posted that online, and the manifesto spoke of a Hispanic invasion. The FBI is treating this as a terrorist attack and possibly a hate crime. The shooter was known to have frequented the online chat site 8chan, where users share violent messages about immigrants and people of color, among other things. But that's not it. Just as people were learning the news about the mass shooting in El Paso, another one occurred. In the early morning hours on August 4th, the next day, a gunman in Dayton, Ohio, opened fire in a popular part of town known for its nightlife. Now, police in the area were nearby. They, they showed up and killed the shooter within 32 seconds. But in that time, half a minute, he had already shot 26 people, killing nine and injuring the others. And this all happened within the same week of another mass shooting, this time at the Garlic Festival, taking place in Gilroy, California, on Sunday, July 28th. The shooter, age 19, killed four people and injured 19 others. Among those he killed was a six-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl. An Instagram account attributed to the shooter, who was killed by police, advised people to read a 19th century manifesto that advocated racial violence and anti-Semitism. So what do we say to all this? First of all, the victims. Dozens of people killed in the span of days. Their only crime? Getting caught in the crosshairs of a murderer. Those are lives. So many of them children or just barely beyond that will never get back. Laughs their loved ones will never hear again. Smiles they'll never see again. Potential we'll never know. And most of the focus is often on the deceased, obviously with good reason, but let's not forget the injured. These are people who sometimes remain on the brink between life and death for days or even weeks. They may walk away eventually, but they're not walking away whole. Perhaps they have a permanent disability afterwards. They have real physical scars to remind them of their ordeal. And they're almost guaranteed to repeat the events of that fateful day countless times and relive the trauma of that whole ordeal over and over again. Not to mention the impact on their families and friends who have to be there for the people involved to help walk with them through the healing. 
So to the families of the victims, both the ones killed and those injured, we're centering you. We're not forgetting you. We're not putting all the focus on these murderers. And we pray for strength in this time. But also, in light of this string of mass shootings, many citizens and politicians have called for stricter gun control laws, not just thoughts and prayers, as important as those are, but actions. Many times these shootings are carried out using rapid-fire assault rifles such as the AR-15. They can kill a lot of people really fast because their weapons meant for war, not for civilian use. And we used to have a ban on assault rifles. It was in a 1994 bill, but certain politicians let the bill expire in the early 2000s. And after this latest round of shootings, even Republican lawmakers right up to the president himself have signaled that maybe, maybe some changes are coming. Changes such as stronger background checks, bans on high-capacity magazines, and so-called red flag laws that prevent people threatening harm to themselves or others from buying or possess possessing firearms. Uh, but there's concern that once again, nothing will happen. I mean, we've seen this before. But now, right now, Congress is out on recess during the month of August, and despite calls from some Democrats to hold a special, special session, Mitch McConnell has refused to do so, so who knows what may happen in the next month when they're in session again after some time has passed. Now, I'm not a legislator and I don't major in policy, but common sense gun measures, they seem to make a lot of sense. Others think that arming the so-called good guys will prevent mass shootings, but it seems counterintuitive, if not downright foolish, to think that more guns is the solution to the problem of guns. Lastly, we have to talk about white nationalism. It is the greatest terrorist threat not just a threat, a reality, in the United States today. According to the Anti-Defamation League, from 2009 through 2018, the far right has been responsible for 73% of domestic extremist-related fatalities. What is white nationalism? It's the belief that white people deserve privileged status in the United States. And that the U.S. is a white person, specifically a white man's country. And that's not the only problem. We also have to talk about the ways Christianity is used to reinforce this idea of a white man's country and religion. It's a phenomenon called white Christian nationalism. A sociologist at Clemson named Andrew Whitehead said white nationalists believe whites deserve privileged status in the United States and Christian nationalists believe Christians deserve the same. Both ideologies stand in the way of unity. So it's this idea that you have to be both white and Christian to be truly American and truly belong. And so who does that leave out? <laughs> Basically everyone else, Muslims, Jewish people, all people of color, women hold a second class status. And what are the impacts of white nationalism and or white Christian nationalism? It's the feeling that America is being invaded or even infested to use some people's terms by black and brown people from other countries. It's the idea that the problems we're facing, such as mass shootings, don't stem from issues like 
poor gun control laws or racism, but they come from the fact that we took prayer out of schools or or made Christianity harder to talk about in the public sphere, like you say happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. In its worst forms, white nationalism and white Christian nationalism turn deadly as young men, typically white, put their ideology into violent action. Here's the application. Christians, especially white Christians, need to be preaching and teaching against white nationalism. Why do I specifically cite white Christians in churches? Because this is not a problem black, Asian, Native American, or Latin American people have. Nationalism is not leading many racial and ethnic minorities to kill people in mass shootings. I'm not saying it never happens or it never could happen, but the threat we're dealing with now is from white nationalists. And we have a president who openly uses terms like invasion to talk about Latin American immigrants. Some of these shooters have directly quoted or used ideas from the president, so churches need to be speaking out about the use and misuse of words, even and especially when it's coming from the president. Christian churches and institutions should also be defining white nationalism and white Christian nationalism so that their followers know how to spot it. We should be talking about warning signs of antisocial and sociopathic behavior. In short, we need to be treating white nationalism like the clear and present danger that it is. Instead of this hair-pulling debating about the phrase Black Lives Matter or defending your supposed right to own semi-automatic military-style weapons, Christians could be discerning what's going wrong with young men, specifically white young men, and how faith communities can give these people a greater sense of belonging than an online chat site that traffics in white supremacy. This is one of the most urgent challenges for the church today. Can churches, especially predominantly white ones, offer a narrative that will dismantle white nationalism as an ideology and offer good news to those people lonely enough and angry enough to want to pick up a gun and kill people. Ice raids in Mississippi. On Wednesday morning in Mississippi, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE for short, carried out what officials called the largest single state worksite enforcement action in the nation's history. ICE agents routed up 680 people, most of them Latin American, in seven factories, seven plants, in five different cities in or near central Mississippi. Mike Hurst, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Mississippi, said, while we are a nation of immigrants, more than that, we are first and foremost a nation of laws. The rule of law is the bedrock, the very foundation of our great country. Without law, there is no order. Without the enforcement of law, there is no justice. So, I'll get to an extended analysis, but let's pause here. Law and order. That rhetoric is reminiscent of what conservative politicians have said for decades, since at least Nixon. And it's dog whistle for cracking down on poor and minority communities. The phrase law and order is hardly ever used when white people break the law. It is code for arresting 
or using law enforcement to repress and repel uprisings from black and brown people. As I record this, about 300 of the nearly 700 people detained have been released and await a court date, but for the hundreds still detained there and their families, they and their families are in agony. One 15-year-old daughter of a man being held said she doesn't know, even now, his exact whereabouts, but just that he's been taking, taken somewhere in Louisiana. Uh, there's an article out from NPR that said, in light of the number of families affected by the raids, St. Anne Catholic Church in Carthage, Carthage, Mississippi, has opened its doors to people in need of legal advice, hot meals, or counseling led by a social worker or child psychologist. So churches are getting involved. And here's what the priest of that church said. The system sees numbers. I know the people by name. I know that they are hard workers, they are people of faith, Faith. they are family people, community people, they were not at Walmart killing somebody else, they were working. So let's break this down. First of all, don't fall for the lie. The lie that those of us who are calling for the humane treatment of human beings are calling for open borders or lawlessness. Now, I say this for any listeners who may have folks like that in their families or social networks. They believe the propaganda that anyone who isn't for a crackdown on illegal immigration through a dramatic display of force and weapons is for letting anyone into the country under any circumstances. Let's get one thing straight. This country's immigration laws and enforcement have been inadequate and ineffective for a long time. It's a problem that spans both Republican and Democratic administrations, and it's something that needs to be addressed. We can agree on that. But what I and so many others are simply saying is that as we attempt to address an important issue, let's remember that these are real people with dignity and equality before God, and we need to treat them accordingly. To the point, what about the children? What a lot of people have latched on to, and so did I, is what happens to the kids of these people who are being detained. According to the Jackson Free Press, which is a local news outlet in Mississippi that I would highly recommend if you want on-the-ground reporting about this this raid and the aftermath, uh, it said children finished their first day of school with no parents to go home to tonight. Babies and toddlers remained at daycare with no guardian to pick them up. A child vainly searched a workplace parking lot for missing parents. Now, these raids took place during the day on the first or second day back to school for students in the area. That means that kids caught the bus or were dropped off by their parents that morning. And by the afternoon, one or possibly both parents weren't at home when school ended for the day. Teachers and school administrators had to scramble to make sure they weren't dropping kids off at a house without any adults there. Organizers had to mobilize to make sure kids had food and places to stay until they discovered whereabouts and status of parents or guardians. Have you ever been at an event or the mall or a store or something and, and your parent was supposed to pick you up and they didn't show up at the time they said they were going to? You remember that feeling? That, 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 that anxiousness? Did they forget what's going to happen to me if I'm alone? How long is it going to be? Imagine that multiplied by hundreds and hundreds of kids in this raid. It's just, 
It's staggering. How is this okay? How is this a reasonable policy in a country that's supposed to stand for liberty and justice for all? This goes far beyond immigration law and policies. This isn't just about civil rights. It's about human rights. So many people who say they stand firmly for family values have no reservations about splitting apart families if they're brown people from the wrong country. And let's also talk about the economic aspect of all this. Again, another Jackson Free Press article said six of seven Mississippi chicken processing plants raided Wednesday were willfully and unlawfully employing people who lacked authorization to work in the United States, including workers wearing electronic monitoring bracelets at work for previous administration violations, according to unsealed court documents. Now, these crimes that employers are committing, you're not supposed to employ undocumented workers, right? So so there's there's the whole other side where people need to work and are desperate and will do what is necessary to take care of themselves and their families, just like any of us would. But on the other side is the exploitation coming from these uh, business owners and, and, and the plant managers. And the reality is that it is notoriously difficult to co- prosecute uh, the these business owners. The This article said from October 2018 to May of 2019, there were eight, eight new prosecutions for hiring people working illegally. And of those eight, just four convictions, four new convictions nationwide. The immigrant laborers were workers at poultry plants. They do the difficult work that most of us don't want to do, and they do it for far less money than most of us would settle for. And the reality is we all benefit from their exploitation because these employers pay their workers so little, and so we get our chicken cheaper. But wouldn't you pay a few more cents or a couple more bucks on your food to ensure that the people literally putting food on your table are treated how you would want to be treated? And what about the employers? ICE rounded up the workers, but the people who knowingly employed them somehow escaped the fate of being herded onto buses and shipped to a massive holding pen in handcuffs along with hundreds of other people. This is a justice issue. It's about justice toward the poor. The Bible has a little bit to say about about justice and the poor. Psalm 37, 19. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. Amos 2, verses 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Psalm 82.3, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And finally, Jesus announces his ministry by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. I could go on and on and on. I've said it before and I'll keep saying it. We're in the midst of the next phase of a long civil rights movement. Now, we shouldn't expect movements in different eras to look exactly the same. In the 1950s and 1960s, our predecessors fought for the basic civil rights of black people in America. Rights that should have been guaranteed by the Constitution and later by the Reconstruction Era amendments. Things like the right to vote, the right to enter any public facility, the right not to be discriminated against because of skin color. In this age, we have to fight for the basic civil rights of Latin Americans, Muslims, and others in our society who should already have all these rights, but they're being called into question. Even, and perhaps especially, undocumented immigrants have the right to expect a basic level of human decency even as they go through the justice system. How we treat the most vulnerable and the most denigrated people in our society is the true measure of our morality. I've made this statement before and I'll keep making it. Lots of people say if they had been alive during the civil rights movement there in the 1950s and 60s, they would have marched with King. They would have picketed. They would have boycotted and demonstrated. They would have been on the right side of justice. Well, we're in the midst of another phase of the civil rights movement right now. And if you're not involved now, then don't deceive yourself and say you would have been involved then. Isn't it time for us to live our faith? Isn't it time that we love our neighbors, especially our undocumented neighbors, as ourselves? Lastly, some more sober news. Toni Morrison, the award-winning writer and cultural icon, died on August 5th, 2019 at the age of 88. Now, we could spend a whole podcast series on the life and accomplishments of Toni Morrison, but here are just a few from the New York Times obituary, the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993, Miss Morrison, was the author of 11 novels, as well as children's books and essay collections. Among them were celebrated works like Song of Solomon, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award in 1977, and Beloved which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1988. Now, her first book, The Bluest Eye, it, it's, it's intense. It weaves the internalized self-hate many black people experience from living in a white-centered world where European standards of beauty, such as blue eyes, are seen as the epitome of desirability in contrast to the brown skin and brown eyes of African-descended people. And she wrote other works, but Beloved is probably her best known and perhaps her most respected work. In it, the protagonist is a slave woman who briefly escapes to freedom, but when slave catchers catch up to her, she slits the throat of her two-year-old daughter and kills her rather than see her child enslaved. Years later, a young black woman shows up at her door. This woman doesn't say a word, but her name is Beloved. 
So beyond her literary accomplishments, though, Toni Morrison took the bold step of centering black people and their experiences. When she began writing in the mid-20th century, it was rare for great works of literature to be completely absent of white people. But that's what Morrison often did in her stories. She centered black people, especially black women. Here's how a friend of mine, Akemeni Uwan, described Morrison's impact on her as a black woman. It's also Uwan's first byline for a national news publication, The Washington Post. So as you can see, Morrison is still inspiring writers, even after her death. Akemeni writes, Tony knew that for a black girl to love herself was no trifling matter. I had to be set free from the clutches of white supremacy to love myself. For freedom lies on the other side of truth, and it is from that side that Tony wrote and spoke to me, to us, black people. She centered blackness, our history, culture, lifestyles, while eschewing the white gaze. And it's that black-centeredness that we at The Witness, a black Christian collective, are trying to emulate. It's what I'm trying to do in my own life. Something you got to understand, for black people, so much of our lives are lived under and in response to the white gaze. The sense that white people, with their norms, their culture, their standards, are always watching, and we, as black people, are hyper-aware of how white people might react to us. So we make moves or keep still. We speak up or remain silent. We assert ourselves or assimilate based on what we think white people will do or want. Well, Toni Morrison was an emancipated black woman. She freed herself from the constraints of the white gaze, and she wrote stories and lived her life that leaned in to blackness as a culture and as a source of self-respect. It's harder to do than you think. When the way you dress, the kinkiness of your hair, the color of your eyes, the cadence of your speech, and everything about you can be used against you because you're on the wrong side of an invented but no less real color line. That kind of scrutiny and judgment affects you, even if you're not aware of it. That's why we needed people like Toni Morrison, people who seemed to have been to a mountaintop of self-awareness and came back down with a kind of magnetic wisdom that drew us to her and at the same time revealed something truer about ourselves. Here's what Morrison had to say. You have in your writing certainly marginalized whites. Why are they of no particular interest to you or seemingly no particular interest well i was interested in another kind of literature that was not just confrontational black versus white i was really interested in black readership and i wanted to do i think for me the allegory or the parallel is is, is black music which is as splendid and complicated and wonderful as it is because its audience was within its primary audience. The fact that it has become universal worldwide, anyone, everyone can play it, and it has evolved, is because it wasn't tampered with and editorialized within the community. So I wanted the literature that I wrote to be that way. I could just go straight to where 
the soil was, where the fertility was in this landscape. And also, I wanted to feel free not to have the white gaze in this place that was so precious to me, which is the work. And you will maintain this safe place for yourself, for your art? You don't think you will ever change and write books that incorporate white, white lives into them substantially? I have to. Mm. In a substantial way? You can't understand how powerfully racist that question is, can you? Because you could never ask a white author, when are you going to write about black people? Whether he did or not, or she did or not. Mm. Even the inquiry comes from a position of being in the center. And being used to being in the center. And being used to being in the center. Mm. And saying, you know, is it ever possible that you will enter the mainstream? It's inconceivable that where I already am is the mainstream. Thank you, Toni Morrison, for continuing to teach us that as black people, we can be and already are the centers of our own story. Rest in peace. That's it for this week. Remember to visit joyandjustice.com to register for the conference. Like my author page on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one, the number one. I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby and on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. Remember, you can contact me via email at footnotespod1 at gmail. That's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. Footnotes.